before I pray, I need to make a few comments about this class, I think, and the notes that you have. Uh, the first is that this is our first time through this class, and so it's under development a little bit. So whatever feedback you have um, you know, on the material, positive or negative or suggestions for other things, send them my way because that's going to help me whenever we do the second pass of this class. So whenever there are comments, I try to just note it in my document and then you know, whenever we go through this next, um, especially as we grow, we're hoping to do multiple Bible classes, adult Bible classes, and add some more in. And I think this one's really helpful because it gives a theological foundation for what happens every Sunday. And a lot of, a lot of what we do right now as a church, um, we, we have been able to here and there talk about why we do it. But to be able to have a full theology of worship class that gives anyone coming into our church a good foundation for what we're going to do, I think is helpful. And then I think it's also this class, I think, should help us in two for two changes that we see upcoming. The first change is that right now we are a small church. And as a church grows in size and diversity, there are changes that start to be seen and felt at every level of church life, including what happens on a Sunday morning. And so that it's sometimes it's hard to tell what, why do, are we doing the things the way we do them because we're small or because there's a theological foundation or is there a philosophy thing there? And what I think this class is doing is helping us have the foundational pieces that can't change. And then it allows us to have an understanding of what can be filtered in and morph and change as our, as our church grows in size and diversity. Does that make sense? So, so sometimes, you know, I, I am a little bit worried that because we're a small church and there's just certain things that we can't do because of our size, that it might be perceived as we are theologically against doing that thing. And, and that cuts both ways, right? There, there are some things people would really like to see that we're not doing that we'd love to do, but we just can't. And then there are other things that maybe someone comes into our church and they're just so thankful we don't do that thing. And really, it's not because of our theology. It's just because of our size. And so this class will give us the, the foundational pieces that we need so that as we continue to grow and as we move through time, time changes, culture changes, all of these things, but we want to lay the foundation of what really doesn't change. Um, but then secondly, uh, you've noticed that there are some things we've started to incorporate into our services that I don't think are major game changers. I kind of talk about them as they are because I think they are important. And so doing, a, doing an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading I think it will dramatically change our church because the word gives life and we're going to know the Bible better. And so I want to overemphasize what we're doing rather than to just act as if it's not a big deal. And there are some other things along the way. I think in our family discussion forum, I'll talk about some of those, but that this class is preparing us for that are probably on those level of changes to where on one, one level, someone might say, ah, these are insignificant. Uh, but I, I want to say these are really big. These, these shape who we are. And I think this class is going to help us navigate those things and receive them as, as a gift from the Lord and part of our practice of worship. Uh, another note that I have before we start is that I've given you full notes here, and uh, these are first drafts, so you'll find all kinds of errors, gra grammatical and otherwise, in them. Um, but also, there, 
these notes are being written as I'm reading particular works and authors. And so you'll notice, especially in these first lessons, I, I'm quoting essentially just a couple of guys along the way. And that's because those are the books I'm reading right now. And I think they do a really good job. And down the road, when I teach this class again, I'm sure I'll be reading other books and I'll add to them or revise and shift and change. Um, but I want to just say that, well, I'll, I'll talk about it when we get into the Trinity a little bit. But on the front end of worship, Baptists have often just kind of a weak, shallow theology of what they're doing. And so I'm drawing in particular from Lutheran and Catholic and Anglican theologies, and that could be troubling to some. Um, and, and I want to recognize that that's natural, but I also want to just say that what we're drawing from are the parts of those traditions that, that we affirm and actually show up in our confessions of faith and all of these other things. And uh, they're the things that the reformers wanted intact. And so we talk about the, the good that the Reformation was. Well, we have to remember that, that they originally were trying to reform the church, not separate from it. So there was a lot of really good stuff there that we shouldn't just do away with because we see it best represented in these other church traditions. And you'll notice as we get further into our worship class, the less of that you'll see because we start to become more particular in the expression of it. But these foundational pieces have been part of Christian theology for almost 2,000 years. And so for us just to pick up in, you know, 1845 is the first writings we appeal to. I think that's problematic. Uh, so just know that. And if you are interested in diving into that a little bit more, if you think I'm nuts, I, I want to give you two books that would be more helpful than anything else you see footnoted. The first is this little book called Know the Creeds and Councils. And this is written from an evangelical perspective on what the good of the creeds and the councils are. We'll reference these a little bit today, uh, but this is one that I think would be really helpful. Um, and then there's this other one that I'd like to recommend called Baptists in the Christian Tradition. And this does a good job of showing how Baptists are the sons of other Christian traditions. And so we, we build on them, we draw from them. And while we certainly have things that are unique about us, uh, we share a lot in common with other denominational traditions. I was thinking about that this week. So I, I pulled up my notes from Baptist history at Maranatha Baptist Bible College. And there's this formulation called BRAPSIS, this acronym that labels all of the key distinctives of Baptists. And I thought I should, I should look at that because if there's anyone who's Baptist, Baptist, it's Maranatha Baptist Bible College. And so I started looking through that and having read this Baptist in the Christian tradition book out of what is, how many are in Brapsis? B-R-A-P-S-I-S. Out of the seven major things, only like two of them are uniquely Baptist. And I think that's instructive. And I don't know how I missed that because even as I was scanning my notes from Dr. Saxon's Baptist heritage class, he, he would regularly comment on other traditions that hold these same beliefs. And so as the, the problem is, though, because Baptists are primarily writing about the things that identify them in distinction from everyone else, most Baptist authors' writings fall in this narrow two-lane category, but we, we need 
the rest of the lanes and, and because other traditions aren't as concerned about defending their uniqueness, there's just a lot more written there. And so as you look at some of these footnotes, you'll, you'll track with that. And um, I think that will be helpful. And if you have more questions about that, you know, talk to me. I'm happy to talk about it. At our upcoming membership seminar, our first session is on what kind of church are we? You know, what's our denomination? And I'm going to have a 30-minute talk on that, I think. And so that will be recorded. So if you could come to the membership seminar, even if you're already a member, and hear that. This is kind of an added thing. Um, but if, if you just like the recording, we can get that to you, too. The final thing and the least important thing is that I, I've discovered a new favorite font. And so you'll notice in your documents in the previous weeks, I had Times New Roman, and now I have Palatino. So I hope that's easier on the eyes. And um, it doesn't matter, but it's a change from our previous weeks that's not theologically motivated. So, All right. Now that we have all of that out of the way, let me pray, and we'll begin talking about the Trinity. Father, we're grateful for your love for us and for the way that you've drawn each of us to you. We pray that as we consider our worship now and in particular the nature of our triune God and how that should express itself in a local assembly, we ask for wisdom and discernment and we ask that you'd enlighten our eyes so that we would understand your word and your way. In Christ we pray, amen. All right. In, in the previous weeks, I've argued that our worship is necessarily evangelical and embodied. It's evangelical because it's from the gospel. The gospel is our entry into the worship, and evangelical just derives from euangelion, this word that, that is the good news, the gospel. But then it's also embodied because God created us as embodied people. We have bodies, and so our worship is not this leaving of the body and ascending to the heights, but actually being who we are more truly as we reflect the image of Christ, which is the exact imprint of the image of God more fully. And um, I think it's interesting that as we look at Jesus, the, the things we know about Jesus are primarily Jesus in his embodied form, in the incarnate Christ. And so it's no surprise to us that our worship is spiritual, but the spiritual can't be disconnected from the physical. So sometimes we can hear texts where like Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and, and says, there a day is coming and now is when you will worship in spirit and in truth. And we can kind of think, hear that in terms of, oh, we only worship with a immaterial part of who we are. Well, that's not what's going on. Jesus is just trying to say uh, there's not one physical location now. Um, so it's not Jerusalem or, or the mountain, I'm forgetting what it is that she's referencing, Gerizim. It's not Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem because I am going to leave and, and when I go, I am going to send the Spirit and, and you are going to be temples now. So there's this movement from sacred place in terms of a temple or sacred worship site where you have access to God to sacred people who, who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So don't hear the New Testament talking about spiritual worship and think, I disconnect from my body when I do that. Um, there are a lot of bad things that come out of this in a variety of ways. In the more conservative Christian way, it's as if no nothing in life can be worshipful. I think in maybe a more Pentecostal tradition, it's this desire to escape the body and, um, you know, be 
frozen in the spirit or have an out-of-body experience or something like that. And I think as you read books about 90 minutes in heaven or whatever else, it, it kind of connects to this idea that our worship is primarily spiritual, disconnected from our body. When in fact, um, we are being remade and there, there's a new creation coming so that we can worship as embodied creatures for all of eternity, just as Jesus Christ is in his incarnate body, glorified now for all of eternity. And I think if we can start pulling some of these threads together, it gives us a more vibrant way forward in our worship. Um, and, and I'll talk about some of the implications of the body part of that in our lesson on worshiping as embodied individuals. I think the Bible has more to say about that than we might, might think. But I, in this lesson, I want to suggest that if our entry point into worship is the gospel, then our worship must center on God because God is the author of the gospel. But I, we need to take one more logical step, and that is that we need to worship God as he is not as we simply conceive him to be. And we believe that God is a triune God. And so our worship needs to be Trinitarian in nature. This guy that I've been referencing, Michael Bird, suggests that the salvation that the gospel promises portrays the Father as choosing, Christ as redeeming, and the Spirit as renewing all in a unified work by distinct persons in the single Godhead. The gospel then requires a triune God. So our, our gospel worship needs to be worshiping the triune God. And in fact, this trinity is actually what makes the Christianity more distinct than any of our other doctrines. So we are genuinely monotheistic, but more specifically, we're Trinitarian. Uh, we, we believe in one God, but we believe in a God that's three in one. And this, I think, often gets lost so unfortunately, many Christians aren't sure of what can be affirmed or what should be denied regarding the Trinity. So there's this annual survey by Ligonier called the State of Theology. And in the 2020 survey, only 53% of respondents strongly agreed with the statement that there is one true God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So just over half of those who identify as Christians are strongly affirming that. And then a lamentable 38% of, resp of respondents strongly agreed that Jesus was created by God. Jesus was not created by God. Um, so for 38% of people to strongly agree, we know there's some, there's some Trinitarian confusion. And then 32% of respondents strongly agreed that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. That's also problematic. So these stats are troubling, especially if what A.W. Tozer says about what we think about God is true. He writes this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts about God. He goes on to say, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. 
I think that's a really challenging statement, and I think it's true. I think that a church never rises above its conception of the God she worships. And I think that, unfortunately, many of us, and I include myself here, have really shallow, weak understandings or, or meditations on who God is, and in, in, in part because I think we start to conceive of God apart from his Trinitarian nature. And, and I think we know um, that if we think about anyone else in a less than true way, we offend them. So Josh uses this illustration in one of the classes he teaches about his wife. If he starts telling her, you have really beautiful brown eyes, um, then she's going to be upset because she has blue eyes. Um, I should have looked today to make sure I said it right. But um, th- there, there's something offensive when when. We misconstru- when someone misconstrues who we are or, or our nature in these sorts of things. And, I, and if we sense that, I think we should probably just assume God senses that as well. And just the magnitude of God's self-disclosure in the Bible should reveal to us that God wants us to know him and make him known, and we need to do so truly. So there is, I think we can say, a lack of careful thinking about God in the church at large. And I think we can say that churches are very good in their expressions of worship, of recognizing God the Father and Christ the Son. But I think often there's a total ignoring of the Holy Spirit. So someone talks about the fact that in many churches you, you find a trinity, but it's God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Bible. And it's almost as if the spirit is neglected altogether. And even in the recognitions of father and son, there's confusion of their persons in the way that we talk about them and relate to them. Now, I think that if we're tracing the history of the church and the development of the doctrine of the Trinity, we can understand why this has happened, particularly in, in our sector. And that's because the church faces different theological crises over the, the ages. And so Christians turn their attention to that thing. And over time, everything else becomes assumed and, and then eventually ignored and then forgotten altogether. And then when you try to retrieve it, it sounds like heresy just because people haven't heard it. And so if you're in a church that has never heard the Holy Spirit talked about as a person, well, if you start teaching and preaching the personality of the Holy Spirit, you might have people hearing that as heresy. The Spirit is just a force or something like that. And so as you hear some of these Trinitarian doctrines, if they strike you as troubling, don't, don't immediately assume it's heretical. Instead, think about how, why it's troubling and um, pursue that line of thinking. I think one of the major crises that impacted evangelical Christians more than the others that relates to this shallow doctrine of the Trinity was the kind of variegated historical Jesus movement. And um, most, some of us are too young to ever have like been a part of that or heard about it, but, but many of you have. And you'll remember that there were things that happened where there were scholars, particularly from Germany, who were trying to identify who Jesus really was in history. And they came up with this distinction between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And so Jesus was a historical human being, but the Christ of faith is this theological teaching. And so you can believe in things like you can say Jesus rose from the dead, but all you mean is that he spiritually rose from the dead in in terms of this is a spiritual truth that helps us. 
And so there was this gathering called the Jesus Seminar where all these scholars sat around a table and they went through the New Testament and they would color code the words of Jesus based on the, the most likely to the least likely of what he would have said or done. And the most likely is like bright red, the least likely is black, and in between there, there are shades of pink, okay? And this is why I hate red letter Bibles. I think they're just silly because I think it creates a canon within a canon of what was truly Jesus and what was just, you know, maybe not. But you can see how Christians, evangelical Christians, would rightly respond to that and lean into historical and archaeological discoveries to say that the Jesus of history is the Christ of faith. They're one and the same. And so a lot of attention started being put on Jesus, and that impacted the Trinitarian discussion and beliefs in churches because people knew a lot about Jesus as a historical being, but not about Jesus as the Son of God or about the rest of the Trinity. And unfortunately, there, we, we got this idea that out of the three persons of the Trinity, um, you know, Jesus is the unknown individual, and we need to pursue historical knowledge of Jesus, and God is the known individual. And while the Synoptic Gospels in particular raise the question of who is Jesus, I think the more resounding theme in the Gospels is who is God? And Jesus is the one who reveals him. So Jesus is the known entity and God is the unknown entity. And, and so we sort of lost track of that in, in saying that God's a known entity and we can prove that Jesus is God. Um, so, so that's a challenge that we haven't faced alone. I think the Sadducees and Pharisees face that challenge alone. But you can understand why the doctrine of the Trinity sort of lost careful articulation over time. This isn't the only reason, but it's one of the crises the church has faced that's distracted from clear Trinitarian teaching. And for better or worse, it's the higher church traditions who maintained the incorporations of creedal language that preserved right language about the Trinity. And so that's why we lean into the creeds, but it's also why we see, particularly in higher church traditions, careful and right articulation of the Trinity. So don't let that be off-putting for you, but count it as a grace from God that while he used one sector of Christianity to fight a good theological fight at different times, there have been other sectors who have held on to the wording and language that we've needed all along. Now, I put in there, this is for free, but I put in there a little footnote about the fact that sometimes when um, authors are writing the name God, if they're talking about God revealed pre-incarnation and especially pre-resurrection, they'll use a, a lowercase g. And that's just to emphasize God is an unknown entity being revealed by Jesus Christ. It's not trying to be disrespectful to God or put God at the same level of all other deities. When, when you come across that in some writings, depending on who it is, it's often just to say, um, this little case G God becomes fully known in Jesus, and then they start using uppercase G. And I say this because I often quote this guy N.T. Wright, and he does that. And so if you ever picked up something he wrote, you might see that sometimes. Know, know that this is what's going on. He's trying to make the case that um, God is the unknown entity revealed by Jesus Christ and confirmed by the Spirit. All right, any questions up to this point on why maybe we're challenged in knowing what we should and shouldn't say about the Trinity? 
Okay, let's move on then to the next section where we get into the basics of the Trinity. So the most basic element of, the Trini of Trinitarian theology that you need to know is that every analogy that I've ever heard for the Trinitari Trinity leads to heresy. So I think that's our starting point for talking about the Trinity is that analogies are going to do us no good. They're going to lead to heresy. And so if you're using them, you should probably stop. I think that's our, our basic fundamental starting point. Um, and to illustrate this, I want to play for you a video that I think is awesome. Um, but it's, it's just sort of pointing out the way that Trinitarian uh, analogies break down into heresies. But there's another point that I want you to take away from this video, and that is to say that there are a ton of Trinitarian heresies out there. And so as we start talking about the Trinity with really particular language and words that might not make sense, just know that that's because it's pushing out all the heresies that tried to keep in with looser language. So I'll play this video for you um, about some bad analogies for the Trinity. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, oh, no, three that guy's persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like... Uh... Okay, I'm going to try to play it with just over these speakers because you can't hear guy number two, and he's an important witness to the Trinity here, okay? <laughs> so I'll, we'll see if we can hear it. If not, you'll have to... Father in three different... ...be considered a part of the church... Patrick. Yeah, get it together, Patrick. Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism, a heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. <laughs> okay, that was probably a bit much. 
All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll stop it there, but I hope that illustrates um, the ease with which we can fall into Trinitarian heresy, uh, but also the necessity of these councils and creeds to give us the language that we need. Also, I haven't watched that full video since college, and I'm not sure what comes next. So I thought I should just stop that right there in case there's anything uh, more goofy that comes up. But I think as we start then, we, we say that the Trinity is a biblical doctrine, but the Trinity is progressively revealed in Scripture. And so really, if we want to talk truly about the Trinity quickly, we really need to start with the creeds and with what Christians have been saying for a long time about the Trinity. And there are three important creeds that articulate Trinitarian doctrine, the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Apostles' Creeds. And these creeds are really helpful and necessary because they're the boundaries of the faith that separate orthodoxy from heresy. And I think all of us just need to be humble enough to admit that we could probably start speaking heretically about the Trinity if we just wing it on our own. And so we need to lean into these historic Christian confessions. And as I mentioned, our, our church builds on these. And I don't think you could find a single church that you would be happy to be at whose statement of faith doesn't draw on the creeds when it talks about the Trinity. And so um, we, we shouldn't ignore these things. I think we need to know them. That's why we recite them sometimes. Uh, so we did a Bible class uh, last year where we talked about the, the different, the church is a confessional community. And we talked about our personal confessions of faith, our church statement of faith, but then the universal church confessions of faith. And we need to tie into all of those. And so that's, that's what we do sometimes here. And so if, you, if we recite a creed together, it's not because we're Roman Catholics, it's because we're Christians. And, and that's a shared Christianity that we shouldn't ignore. And I think we need to be evaluating the statements of faith that we do have to ask whether or not they're clear enough regarding the Trinity. So, for instance, in our Southern Baptist Statement of Faith, that's currently our Statement of Faith, the Baptist Faith and Message, the, the major line on the Trinity says, The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. And while I think we affirm that, there's, it's also, I think, giving us a sense that more needs to be said. What does it mean that he reveals himself as blank? I think we need to be able to build on this. And in fact, this is why we want to work to develop our, our own statement of faith, drawing from some of these really good historic creeds and confessions and, and otherwise. So for those of you who are coming from Eden, this is what Eden did. And this is what they just redid as Dan worked through and updated those things. And so um, I think there's a lot we can draw on 
uh, but I don't, I'm not convinced that a denominational statement of faith is going to be sufficient for what we want here. I don't think it's quite thick enough, and so we want to add to that. So let me read an example of a fuller statement of this doctrine and a statement of faith that I think is helpful. That there is one God, we believe that there is one God, infinitely great and good, the creator and sustainer of all things visible and invisible, the one true source of light and life, who has life in himself and lives eternally in glorious light and sovereign love in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal in nature, majesty, and glory. Everything God does in creating, sustaining, judging, and redeeming the world reflects who God is, the one whose perfections, including love, holiness, knowledge, wisdom, power, and righteousness, have been revealed in the history of salvation. God has freely purposed from before the foundation of the world to elect and form a people for himself to be his treasured possession to the praise of his glory. So even there, there, there's some language of the creeds that start popping up, and if you're familiar with them, you're catching on to it. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through and teach on the Trinity at length. In fact, that would be a, a full Bible class that we hope to do in the future. But I want to give the essential elements of the Trinity. And if these raise questions for you, I think there'll be a good conversation. We can't dwell on them and, and break it apart here. So certainly there will be some things that will, will be confusing. But there's this acronym triune that I think gives us the basics. First, there is only one God in three persons. God is one being, one indivisible unity, eternal and immaterial, yet this God subsists as three persons who are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our relations of origins are paramount. The divine persons are differentiated by relations of origin. That is, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Holy Spirit is proceeding. And this might may be the most... Um, complicated and hard to talk about piece of it, um, but, that, but that'll be good in a Trinity class or in a conversation later. Inseparable operations. The divine persons have distinct operations or works appropriate to who they are. That is, the Father is the creator, the Son is redeemer, and the Spirit is renewer, but even then their operations are inseparable. Namely, the Father involves the Son and Spirit in what he does. The Son is the Son of the Father and the bearer and dispenser of the Spirit, and the Spirit is sent by the Father through the Son. And so that leads us then to you, united in being. The three divine persons possess the same deity and power and share the same substance being nature. Then finally, well, I guess two more, and no subordination or, of being or rank, no multiplication of deities, no confusion of person. God subsists as three equal persons, not three gods, not one God with three different faces, and not one supreme deity with an angelic deputy and ethereal delegate. E, every Christian should be Trinitarian, not Unitarian, nor Jesus monistic, nor new Pneumonistic. Okay, there we go. So not just Jesus, not just spirit. We need to be Trinitarian. All right. In the time that remains then, I, I'm not going to ask if there are questions on that because I know there are and we just can't get into them. But um, the, the Trinity is a mystery in one way, but it's also a, an important doctrine. So becoming a Trinitarian church, um, we need to continue to grow as a Trinitarian church. So Michael Bird asked this question in the book I'm reading. If believing the Trinity were a crime, what evidence would be used to prosecute your church? I think that's a good question for evaluating whether or not we're a Trinitarian church. If someone was coming in today 
we would be convicted because we're talking about the Trinity. But if, the, if someone came in to evaluate whether we were guilty of the crime of being Trinitarian, would, would we be found guilty? And hopefully the answer will be la- yes. And so I want to give some ideas on how we can grow to become a more Trinitarian church. And so I have five suggestions. Some of these are in progress. Some of them wait future development. Number one, I think the doctrine of the Trinity needs to be taught carefully to all ages. This teaching most naturally will take place in Bible classes, but should be included in sermons and songs and even prayers. Um, So I think that it's going to be prudent for us to offer an adult Bible class on the Trinity. And and as we add Bible classes for other ages, so we hope when we get to this new building to add a Bible class for kind of that elementary, junior high age, and, and I think that even these younger individuals need to have an understanding of the Trinity, and that means that there have to be individuals in our church who are equipped to teach them about the Trinity, and so there has to be some level of Trinitarian discipleship all the way down. Um, two, the doctrine of the Trinity needs to be explicitly included in songs and prayers in our worship gatherings. Unfortunately, most of our son songs emphasize the Father and the Son, but, but the Spirit is absent. And, and I think that's problematic. I'm not suggesting we should get rid of any songs that don't have all three persons of the Trinity mentioned. That would be foolish. But I am suggesting that we need to pull both from the ancient past and from the present. There are really good Trinitarian songs being written now, and there are really good Trinitarian songs that we're not singing that we should be. Uh, So, for example, um, on Spotify, I came across this album by some guy named Travis Cottrell. I don't know if I'm saying that right or not. And there are some very Trinitarian exalting songs in there. So all week, every day I've listened to that album at least once. and, And I think that we need to pull from that. But I also think there are some songs from like the 1200s that we need to pull from, even if we need to put them to music that can work for us. Three, the doctrine of the Trinity should be regularly communicated and affirmed through the recitation of historic Christian statements of faith, creeds, catechisms, and councils. This recitation can take place formally during the morning service, either through responsive readings or or a full corporate recitation, informally in family devotions and in other appropriate settings. So this is, if we're talking about changes, quote unquote, this is one of them that's not really a change. It's something we already believe, but it's something that I think we want to start seeing more regularly. Um, Five, resources for learning about the doctrine of the Trinity should be made available to our church members through the purchase of lay level books for our library and other helpful resources should be compiled to to provide a, a place where people can grab good Trinitarian teaching. And so I would imagine that one of the ways this could work out is we start a resources listing on our webpage, and we've got a good list of Trinitarian resources, including articles, books, podcasts, and, and all the rest. This takes work. This takes time. It takes careful evaluation, but I think it's well worth it. Um, and on that note, somewhere in these notes, I have a footnote referencing one of our current church podcast episodes on creeds and councils that gets into the Trinity a bit that I think could be really helpful for you, particularly if you're wanting to think about how do we incorporate this as a church even more. So there's a pastor at Eden who did our, our Bible conference, Rich Penix. He and I talked for half an hour about these things. You can find that and listen to it on two speed, so you can learn just as much in half the time. So um, that's 
that's great. That's there for you. Um, so in our preaching and teaching, but then also in our prayer and worship, I think our prayers and larger worship are only possible because of the Trinity, so they should be Trinitarian. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that quote to you uh, to read on your own, but I think we need to give conscious regard to the Trinity. That includes being careful in our language, not just incorporating that language into our worship. And so uh, particularly for those who lead in prayer, we need to be careful not to start a prayer addressing it to our dear Heavenly Father and halfway through thank Him for dying on the cross and raising from the dead. Only the incarnate Christ rose from the dead. And so we don't want to conflate the persons of the Trinity. And I, I mess this up sometimes too. We all do as we are thinking through things. But in the same way that when we unconsciously talk incorrectly about someone we know and we feel compelled to apologize and correct our language about that person, I think the same should go for, for talking about our triune God. And so I don't want to overstate it, but I don't think it would be wrong for us when we confuse the Trinity in a prayer to say a word of repentance and then correct it. And I know that that might seem weird, but if we actually are envisioning God as a personal entity who is our Lord and King and Savior, when you say something incorrect about your King, you apologize and you correct your speech. So even though it might be awkward, um, I, I think it's a good teaching lesson even there as our church hears, you know, whether it's your pastors or someone else after they they mess up the Trinity to pause and say, Father, we repent for failing to think rightly about you. And it's revealed even in the slips of our language here. And so, so we thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. And, and that might sound silly even now, I know, but I think, it, I think it is a right way of thinking about our God as a real entity who we're truly talking to. All right, finally, uh, well, not finally, because I have a conclusion. In our ministry and mission, these need to be Trinitarian. And uh, it needs to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit and defined by sending and being sent. That expands a bit beyond our corporate worship gatherings, so um, that, we'll leave that there. But in conclusion, I, th I just want to say that I'm, I'm developing in the way that I think and speak about the Trinity because I found that it's something that's been neglected in my own discipleship and, and training. And so I hope that this gives us a good step forward. We recognize that we'll never arrive fully here, but um, as we press forward, I think there are at least three things that we can say. First, our worship and life together must fundamentally be incarnational. The images we're given to see ourselves with is the image of the body of Christ. And I think as we talk about our union with Christ, our connection to him, this incarnational, like actually physically expressed acts of worship and love and service are, are really the starting point. Um, so we don't just talk about something, we don't flee our bodies, but we worship through our bodies as the body of Christ. Second, our worship and life together must fundamentally aim to glorify God the Father. And of course, as the Father is glorified, so too are the Son and Spirit. But we follow in the cruciform steps of Christ who sought to glorify his Father. And I think that's our, our calling as well. And then finally, our worship and life together must be spiritual. And notice that I capitalize spiritual, that is to say, defined by the Holy Spirit. They must be spirit-empowered, directed, and effected, that is, carried out. 
Um, so the nature and work of the Spirit in, the, in worship, ministry, mission, that's often debated. I know that. It's complicated. But what's not debated is that in all these things, they should bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is the building up of the body, the uniting of the church, and the edifying of the saints, if it's going to be truly spiritual. And so we, we need to try to flesh out what that means uh, for the work of the Holy Spirit to be evident. But it means at least that. Okay, we have one minute, and I want to read this funny paragraph. And um, if you are familiar with Trinitarian debates over the centuries and the creeds, this will be funnier to you. Um, if you aren't, it won't be funny at all, but read, uh, read a couple of the creeds, and you'll think this is funny. You'll, okay. In closing, I'm quoting Michael Byrd. I don't always give advice on the Trinity, but when I do, I tell folks to get an affinity for the Trinity. Read and heed the Athanasian Creed and do not interfere with all things Nicaea. Legislate theological rights for divine persons who identify as homoousios. Put a copy of Andrei Rublev's icon, the Trinity, in your pastor's study. Name your sons Tertullian. Name your daughters Melania. Call your dogs Arius and your cats Schleiermacher. Start a campaign to rename Oregon as Origin, but with better Lagos Christology. Pray Trinitarian prayers every morning. When it comes to articulating the Trinity around those who deny it, mess with it, or undersell it, be as pugnacious as Athanasius. He reportedly punched a guy over the Trinity. It's not true, though. It, it never happened. It's fake news. Keep it theologically kosher like a boss from Cappadocia. Make every Sunday a Trinity Sunday. Remember, friends don't let friends do social Trinitarianism or functional subordination. Tell Congress to make the Trinity great again. Youth leaders who bring out three-leaf clovers should be sentenced to reading Augustine's The Trinity in Latin. Keep orthodoxy alive. Preach the Son's full divinity like it's 325 A.D. Build up your brothers and sisters in the most holy Trinitarian faith. Above all, stay orthodox, my friends. Fads come and go, but, the, but orthodoxy is like granite. It stands the test of time. So you've got a couple of humorous Trinitarian pieces that might help calm the nerves as, as we tread into what is something of a mystery in, in the challenging doctrine.